Hello, and welcome to That Means Nothing to Me. I'm your host, Trey Taylor, and actually, today I have a bit of a disclaimer. This episode deals heavily with the process of embalming, cremation, and what happens to your body after you die. If you have a weak stomach, or if you're uncomfortable with discussion about death, I would recommend skipping this episode. However, if you do decide to stick it out, I've put a little bell sound effect like this. Every time the conversation is about to go very downhill, I'd recommend skipping forward every time you hear it throughout the episode. That way you'll still get to hear Joe's incredibly unique story without some of the more gruesome details. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. My name is Joe. I am a mortician by day. I was also a go-go dancer by night. And uh, what I'm most proud of is going from working in the funeral home, like working, like burning the bodies in the daytime. Yes, he did just say burning the bodies in the daytime. And then going at night to like go-go dancing and, and flirting and, you know, put, having people put money in my underwear band. Uh, <laughs> How did you get into being a mortician? It was weird how I fell into being a mortician. Like it was, it wasn't something that if you asked me like six years ago, what would you see yourself doing? You know, in the future, I, mortician probably wouldn't have been on the list at the time. The, how I got into it was I was really good with computers at the time, and I was kind of doing that freelance. I was also doing photography freelance, so. I was doing computers on the side, kind of like setting up networks for, for small businesses, things like that. And honestly, I was at the funeral home, just supposed to be there for one month to set up their network, make sure these computers talk to these printers and so on and so forth, you know. Well, it was during that month that I had there where the man who was the crematory operator just up and left one day. He gave no two weeks notice, just decided he didn't want to be there anymore. And the owner of the business came in and said, that he had quit that morning and they were looking for somebody to run the crematory. And gosh darn it, wouldn't you know, I was the only one who raised my hand. I have known Joe for all of eight minutes at this point in the interview, and yet I'm not surprised by this. And then I just kind of went from there, got back in school, um, and, went, and eventually went to school for mortuary law. and. That's where I am now. I'm still cremating and, and sewing mouths shut and making bodies look good. So, <laughs> Oh my gosh. I, yeah. feel, I feel like that's such a misunderstood profession. Like there's it, so little that people know about it because the only time it's represented is in like horror movies. It really is. It really is a, a misunderstood profession to a certain extent. When I... When I was dating, just after I had started doing that, and I would tell people, like, that's what I did... First of all, that like raised a minefield of question. I, I've had like I, I I had somebody tell me that they were like scared because of my profession. It frightened them. It was kind of an eye opener for me because I didn't think about that. You know, I didn't think about somebody else thinking about my profession as being, you know, uh, they're just sitting there all night thinking, oh, he could hide the body and nobody would ever even know. <laughs> But it, it's one of those things where you tell people and they say, how do you do that for a living? And my answer is always the same. Um, I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> I'm just disposing of the body after they died. So it's definitely been, been interesting when, when I get into conversations. 
That's so interesting. I can't imagine like another profession that people feel like they would just carry it over to their home life for fun. If you were a tailor, you wouldn't go on a date with somebody and you'd be like, oh my gosh, he's going to resize my pants while I'm asleep. <laughs> like he's going to sew my mouth shut and burn me alive. That's not... Right. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And the sewing the mouth shut, just to clarify, we do that all from the inside so it doesn't show. Um, <laughs> yeah, up ha. through like, so like a suture needle goes like right up through the, through the in, inside of the upper lip, if you can picture this. Uh, <laughs> it goes through the inside of the upper lip, out through the nostril, um, then through the septum into the other nostril, down through the um, inside of the lip again, and then one, uh, one suture through the inside of the lower part of your mouth, like along the lower gum line. And then the string, you just tie it together and the mouth stays shut and they're perfect for viewing, really. <laughs> yeah, so it's, that's one of my favorite, I think that's one of my favorite ones to start off with telling people about is like, is the sewing the mouth shut. Oh, totally, oh, totally. Because it, <laughs> it's, so, it's so foreign. It's such a yeah. weird concept to think about. It really is. And then I can kind of gauge the person I'm talking to a little bit. You know, I, it's, and I've seen all sorts of reactions to that. Everything from the, the reaction of where the face just tells you the story of, please, I don't want to know anymore. Didn't even want to know this much. And then I see, I, like, I see the reaction of, and this is the more common one, startled, but at the same time, very intrigued. <laughs> body is burned at about 1,650 degrees, a um, couple hours, about an hour per 100 pounds. Uh, so it's a little different than your standard Thanksgiving turkey. But um, <laughs> you do have to kind of like stoke and, and when the body's on fire, you have to go back and check on it, make sure everything's running smoothly enough. <laughs> and I, when I started the job, I really couldn't do it. But I, I, I'm so used to it now that it's, it's just, it's come second nature at this point. And, and, gosh, how do I say it? <laughs> I, I almost have a routine now, you know, going in there, pulling the body, introducing myself. Hello, Mrs. Smith, I am your crematory operator today. You talk to them? <laughs> it's, they're wonderful, they don't talk back. Um, I don't know if you knew, but I was, a, I, my very first job was I worked in public, in, in customer service for nine years. And so going from that to, setting people on fire is actually kind of a relief you know after nine years of customer service the idea of setting people on fire is a very comforting thought and so now I, I go in, like I go in there with a smile and you know that same public's attitude just that carried over in those nine years carried over into my funeral work and hello mrs. Smith I'm your crematory operator today here, this is your first time being cremated. Don't worry, we're going to make this as fast and painless as possible. Please keep your hands, feet, arms, and legs inside the retort at all times. There is no eating, drinking, or flash photography. Notice I didn't say anything about smoking because in a couple minutes you're going to be smoking. <laughs> we thank you for choosing our funeral home. <laughs> <laughs> 
pushes in, turns on music. She's just a girl and she's on fire. Oh you know, <laughs> and it's that is my day now. How can you not enjoy that? How long did it take you to just be comfortable with the whole process? It probably took me about half a year, probably about a solid six months to be completely comfortable. And there are some things that I'm not, I'm not entirely comfortable with yet. And there's just going to be some things that I'm not going to be. Children. That is the worst. You know, most of the time in my profession, I see people who passed away 80, 90 years old, hospice care, cancer, all these years of cancer, and, you know, it, or, you know, 100 years old, lived in their house until they were, like, 98, and then they had to go into a nursing home. I see that, and it's just like, you know, those people passed away, but that was, those were celebrations of life. I, I can't, you know, I don't have, uh, granted, I don't know the person, but even still, I, I don't have much of a, a bad feeling there because you know that person lived a good long life they had a lot that they did in their lives and i look at the memorial you know the pictures they send in for the memorial videos and it's like they went to egypt they went to paris they went here or there they traveled they they did what they they died after a wonderful long life and then i see kids and it's just complete opposite end of the spectrum i see people anyone that's younger than me i have a problem with it's just you know that shouldn't happen I feel like that's, that's, you know, that's not the order of things. You know, you shouldn't pass away at a young age. One thing that's, I think, always going to bother me um, every time I see it, there's never going to be a time that I see a kid in my funeral home and I'm going to say, well, this, you know, they, they lived a good life, you know. So um, that that's something I don't think I'm ever going to used to. And, and <laughs> I think I'm okay with not getting used to that. <laughs> Does the cause of death change how you interact with people who come to your table there is <laughs> there, there was one case that i had in and, and this was a very a very tragic case um it, it happened oh gosh i want to say it had it was probably about two years ago around two years ago now the situation was this guy had um i, I guess it, it was a total hostage situation he it had himself and I think it was like three kids that were locked into an apartment or a house like somewhere in Orlando and he was like holding these kids hostage um, it didn't end well at all the kids all were he murdered all the kids and then he committed suicide he shot himself um, and they they had a really tough time, you know, finding a funeral home for this guy because a lot of funeral homes didn't want to take him because of the situation, because he was, you know, A, a kid killer, and then he offed himself. Um, and my boss came to me, and I remember the whole conversation, you know, he didn't want to take this guy in either, almost, and I understand it, you know, I understand not wanting to take this guy in, but at the end of the day, we have to do what's right for the family, you know, and that's what I—that's really what I try to keep in mind more than anything else. Yeah, I talk to the dead bodies, but when it when it all comes down to it, we're really helping the family out. The dead person is not there, and it is the family that we're helping. And that's what I told my boss too. And and, and he, I know he understood that, but we sometimes we need to be reminded that 
we're helping the family out and you know think of the family being in that situation they don't want to be dealing with this right now they don't want to be sitting in the funeral home making these arrangements they they didn't want to be turned down by other funeral homes in Orlando the best we can do is you know is help them out with the services that they need done of course I will say this, a lot of times we give discounts, and I straight up told him, like, no, you charge them full price, but <laughs> either way, you know, we, we have to help them out, and, and because bottom line is, someone is going to have to dispose of the body, and someone is going to have to make pay, you know, get paid from it, whether it's being forced by the county at that point or not, it's going to have to happen, um, so that situation was one where we got him in, and in, in the it was in the back of my head that I'm just like you know I, I really just the, the whole kid killer thing I, I didn't want to I had connections about it myself I didn't really want to have him there either but I, I had to put that aside to say that you know we have to help you know it's the family that we're helping and that's that's the bottom line is it's the family that we're helping out here. So I guess, like, the circumstances of death like that, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's something that I think about. And uh, believe me, I was uh, way happier pushing that guy into the fire. <laughs> I, I'm really impressed with your kind of morbid humor. Like, like, <laughs> like I, I don't know how else you would be able to talk about some of this stuff. That's, and you know, that's just it. And like, I, th this is, I mean, seriously, this is me being as candid as possible, Trey. Uh, I gotta tell you, because I mean, th it's not a conversation that I just go around having with everyone. Um, I do, you know, when people ask, I talk about it. You know, I, I, it's not something that I don't talk about or don't like talking about. Honestly, I freaking love talking about it. But um, when it comes to like, ha it, talking about it we have to have a dark sense of humor a little bit you know and I think everyone in our profession does because we have to do it to get through uh, I'm not going to say specifics on this one but there is a medical examiner's office in the state of Florida that I went into once to um, to bring a body into our care and when I went there and I saw the coolers that they had for the bodies they have a sign hanging off the door that said uh, beware of zombies <laughs> so I mean it's it's everyone in our profession I think we have to have kind of a morbid sense of humor in order to get through the day sometimes because what are we dealing with we're dealing with families that are grieving you know, sad people everywhere if we don't have a dark sense of humor you know something that we can laugh at or, or something where we can make ourselves laugh in some way to get through it then I mean we're, we would just be depressed all the time because I mean working there I think about death a lot it's it's unavoidable when you're working in it. You know, you think about um, your family members and if, you know planning for yourself in case you know what's what happens if I pass away. You know, what if I go before my mother goes? I want to make sure that all my stuff is in order. Granted, I'm young, but I could walk out and get hit by an airplane. Who knows? So I, I need to make sure my my stuff is in order. And it's 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 something that I don't think I would think about unless I was in this profession. You know, it's it's. It, it puts a new perspective, um, a new perspective on things. Uh, but it, it, we have to, I mean, that's why we have to laugh about it, though, because these are things that are always constantly on our minds. 
if we're on call, we're getting death calls like anytime day or night, and you know, to to bring loved ones into our care, and the family's already calling, they're grieving. You know, it's it's very sad on the business end. So I think we look for that little bit of relief on the in in our personal lives, you know, because we we are thinking about death even then, and uh, we we need that relief, that kind of break away from it. I'm begging you to skip this. I had to hear it, but you don't. This is your last warning. Do you know what a trocar is, Trey? I do not. Okay, so it's one of probably one of the more, most barbaric things I've ever seen in my life. Um, but so a trocar, this is something that I, I can... <laughs> so when a body is embalmed, um, after the embalming, the embalming part is done, a trocar is like this big device that they use to stick into like the trunk of a person to suck out all like excess fluids. So if anyone had any fluids in their lungs or um, any excess fluids that, because you don't want a body purging, you know, during a service. So you have to do what you can to avoid that. Honestly, I think the whole embalming process is very graphic. What do you, what do you mean suck out? It's like a, it's like a vacuum? Yeah, it's like a big stick that has like an open end on like, it's like um, you, you stick it into a person and it has like a hose attached to it and it sucks like all excess fluids out of the body of a person. It's pretty nasty. Um, but yeah, it's got, it's like a vacuum kind of hose and it, it vacuums everything out into a drain. A drain? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. All excess <laughs> fluids, everything inside. It's nasty. It is... <laughs> It's gnarly stuff. <laughs> At one point in our interview, I asked Joe if there was anything that had happened to him that felt like it was straight out of a horror movie. And to my surprise, he answered... Yes, that, so that guy that sat up on me, and this was fun because I actually did this removal. Um, I, went to the, like, I went to the house and you know, got the guy, brought the guy into our care, like, drove him to the funeral home myself, put him in the box, put him in the cooler... Family came in later that day to make arrangements with the funeral director, right? While they make arrangements, they decide that they want to do something that we call an ID view. Basically, they want to see his body. There's not going to be any embalming. It's usually just two to three people that see him. But they just want to see that he, we have his body and that they, and they might want to just say goodbye. So that's just an extra service that we do offer. The funeral director was in the arrangement room meeting with the family. He came back and told me that we were going to do an ID view after the arrangements were made. So I had to go out to the cooler and get this guy ready for his ID viewing with the family, which is basic preparation, like what we talked about earlier with the sewing the mouth shut, making sure the eyes stay closed, things like that. It's very basic preparation that goes into an ID view. So there's no embalming or anything. And I go to pull him from the cooler, and... He's like peeking over the side of the box at me. Like he's lift, his face is lifted against the like it's against the lid, and he's looking over at me. He's dead. He's oh. very much dead. But he's staring at me, and <laughs> it's oh my it's, god. I'm not gonna lie, it startled me a little bit. His muscles oh. contracted just enough. It happens a little, like it happened, and I've seen this happen once or twice, but it's a slow contraction. 
and what that's what happened when we put him in the cooler though i guess his, his muscles slowly contracted in upwards motion to make it look like he was kind of sitting up at kind of a 45 degree angle oh. yeah <laughs> so i it, it startled me like I, I got the rack out of the cooler and then i saw him there and i was just like oh gosh <laughs> oh. yeah it was uh it, but we we, we got it done it, it was a thing that we were able to do and you know they were they the family was very very appreciative very grateful um and he looked normal by the time we were ready for the viewing there are a lot of things that happen that families don't see and they would never know about and they don't ever know about because we get it taken care of before the viewing is taking place. What kind of precautions are there, if there are any, to prevent you from going to work one day and you walk in the back and a parent or a friend is laying there on the table? When we get the call, the first call that comes in saying, hey, this person has passed and they, this family has selected your funeral home, uh, I would see their name. Like, gotcha. I would see okay. who it is. And it happens. If it's someone that maybe, like I, like, I wasn't really close with but knew, and I've had that happen before. Like, I just I walk in and I see a name that I'm like, oh, I think I know this person. Oh, I think, we, no. you know, it's someone that I've casually, you know, interacted with. You know, it was someone that is that I, you know, I recognize the name and I used to see them like out at a bar, you know, if I, if they happened to frequent the same bar that I did. And then I'd say, okay, so that was, you know, that I would make it known that, yeah, I do know that person. And it's, it's not a big deal. Like I, it's, there's, there's nothing that says that I can't, you know, that we can't know the person that we're helping out. Um, we can help, I mean, we can help our own friends, family. In fact, I would prefer if any of my friends or family did pass away, that they came to my facility because at least at my facility, I know they're being taken care of well. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I know that because I'd rather be able to keep an eye on them myself because I, I know that, I, I know what's going on here. I know that in my facility, they're safe. this music play a little bit if you need a, a breather or just kind of a little unwind from uh, that previous part of the interview. We'll be back with part two here in a second. I couldn't exactly figure out why I was having so much trouble coming up with questions to ask Joe about go-go dancing. And then... Have you ever been to a bar with go-go dancers, Trey? I, I have not. I have not. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> Buckle in. You are not ready for the second half of this interview. How did you first get into go-go dancing? Oh gosh, go-go dancing was my salvation when I moved to Orlando. Uh, <laughs> and that was the time when I was just working at Publix for the most part. Well, I, it was my salvation when I moved to Orlando. I actually started it in Lakeland at a bar that was not there for very long called Club Karma. So 
I worked there at night to make a little bit of extra money because at the time I was young and in college, didn't have a hell of a lot of money and was still trying to move out of mom's house. So, you know, when you get when you get a little desperate and you're trying to move out of mom's house, you're like, and there's a bar right in town that needs go-go dancers, you're like, you know, maybe I, sh I could do this and, and it'll help me move me out a little faster. And it, it did help me move out a little faster. I didn't expect to like it. <laughs> But I did. I did. I did like it. I enjoyed it, um, and it was great exercise because I, I got to I, I got to dance for four hours a night, and I could eat whatever I wanted. And so I did that at night for a while while I was doing Publix in the daytime, and that's how I eventually moved, saved up some money to get an apartment in Orlando, and, and I moved out of mom's house. So that's really how it started. It was kind of a it was kind of a thing that. I didn't expect to uh, expect to be in as long as I did. I met a dancer in Orlando when I was working in Lakeland. He was the one that actually got me set up set up at a place here in Orlando where I was making, of course, Orlando bigger city, so I was making better money. Where I worked was uh, it was a bar that was known for having like twinkish looking cocoa boys. <laughs> this may be a stupid question what is a go-go dancer you're right i need to describe that for the people <laughs> that have never seen go-go dancers i say box okay so let me explain where we used to dance there were three boxes three like two foot by two foot by two foot i'm estimating boxes that would be um in the main bar where i worked and there was a dancer that would like, they're just like, you know, two foot, two cubic feet boxes. Um, and you, the dancers would step on these boxes and we'd dance in basically our shoes and underwear. Uh, <laughs> for the entertainment of the patrons of the bar. So you're in your underwear in, in a room full of all these people and it's and you have and now not only are you in your underwear in a room full of these people but you're on top of a two-foot box dancing and you have to you, you got to dance for them <laughs> it feels weird at first the first time you do it it feels very strange very foreign after a couple times you get used to it and at first and you have to get a level of confidence there that <laughs> it's it feels almost impossible to get it feels like it's almost impossible to get hold of because, I, I mean, the first time I did it, I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to be comfortable enough doing this. And then I got up there and I started dancing and people actually started giving me money. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's how this works. I can do this for money. All right, that's fine. Um, <laughs> and then the hits move a little bit more freely and not so tense anymore. And, uh, you know, eventually it just becomes second nature. And, and you get regular customers too. And I, and for being a go-go dancer, I loved my regular customers. If I came in and I saw my regulars in there, I'm like, oh, good, I'm going to make some money tonight. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How did all of these jobs work at the same time? I was doing, I was go-go dancing at night 
and I was a mortician in the daytime, and I was doing publics on weekends. So it was really, really weird to have all these like different, you know, different hats to wear. And then when like if there were there were some people that would come in at nighttime and they knew what I did in the daytime, and they would just you know they would just want to talk to me about that. I don't know why. It's <laughs> that part is not my business, but it's like you know they had questions and. It's, it's, I guess it's just one of those things that it's like it, it interested them to the point where they kind of didn't want to ask, but at the same time, it was like a train wreck. They couldn't turn away from it. It's like, there's, I don't, you know, I don't want to know, but I have so many questions. <laughs> the thing that interested me most about this interview was that one minute, Joe was completely alone. The only living thing in a small, sterile, well lit room with only a corpse to talk to. And the next, half naked dancing on a pedestal, crammed into a loud and pulsating bar with dollar bills poking out of his underwear. I wanted to know firsthand what having, quite literally, the least related jobs on the planet was like. How was that, like, mentally to go to flip-flop between them and, like, be so surrounded by death at one point and then be so surrounded by life another? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you straight up, that is exactly why the dark sense of humor comes in at where it does. Because that, like, if I didn't have a dark sense of humor, it would be like, it would probably be a lot more draining than it, than it already is. And it, and it has been draining. Like it was, it, there were things that, you know, there's things that I see there that are, that are very emotionally draining things. Um, but to go from that to the that that environment in the daytime um to a more <laughs> a more high energy more um dancey atmosphere at night you could even say alive it was i think the dancing was was pretty refreshing um because i got i, I love like i don't get me wrong i love both of those jobs like a mortician like i hope i'm doing this for the next 30 years and i'm and i hope i retire doing it but go-go dancing as well i love doing it and you know what if i hadn't if i hadn't quit and gained 20 pounds i would have still been back up on that box um i loved you know i loved that i could eat whatever i wanted and i didn't gain an ounce and then i quit and of course you know then i packed the pounds on <laughs> but it it was it was different and i think in in a, in a way having both there when i was starting to get into the mortician thing having the dancing there is kind of like a, a something on the opposite end of the spectrum kind of balanced out my mental health a little bit because at first getting into the funeral home it was more draining at first than it, you know that the first like 6 months or so i think the like the first that first bit of time was the most draining emotionally so I was fortunate to have a different job where I could go from that kind of that kind of low to a very happy, kind of high, uplifting environment. Now it's like it's different because I actually do have weekends off now. This is the first time in my life that I have, well, first time in my working life that I've only worked one job um, since, well, probably about 2010, 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. So now it's like I have weekends off, so my weekends are my, are my happy time where I, I kind of take my weekends and recoup. 
I, I get some stuff around the house done. I, I go to like a, a, a nightclub or a bar or, or go to one of the local theme parks or, you know, just something that that's not work related, something that, to get my mind out of that mindset. And so when I didn't have weekends off, when I was like working uh, every single day of the week, that was, go-go dancing was my relief. Like it was in a way, um, that was my happy job. <laughs> and that's probably why I've worked so many jobs. It's not because I ever, I mean, I, I, there was times that I had to, but there were times that I worked multiple jobs because I wanted to. Like I wanted one job that's, you know, okay, serious job, fun job. You know, I got one that's a serious job that I do five days a week. And then I have another one that's a fun job, still making money. and But I'm actually having a good time doing that. Did your time as a mortician change the way you saw people even when they were alive? Oh, definitely. Even now when I meet people, I like, I think straight off the bat, like how long they would take to cremate. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's weird, but like, it's like, I'll like, I'll meet someone in my head. I'm looking and I'm just like, yeah, about two, three hours, two and a oh half hours. God. I would say, you know, that's the first thing that pops up is just it, it's that and the idea that everyone that i meet and everyone that you meet you, you have to like think about they have a ticking time clock above their head that means that they're not going to be around anymore only thing is you can't see that clock but it is ticking you don't know what time that's going to happen but it's going to happen so that's another thing that i think about it's like i've got a clock over my head right now i don't know when it's going to stop but that's that's a thought that I am constantly having, um, and it's one of those things that I it's like if I'm sitting alone like at home when the power goes out I think about it, or if I'm like at a bar having a drink with a friend, it comes into my head. It's just it's just one of those things that's always there. It's always in the back of my mind, you know. You know. The thing about being a mortician that has impacted me the most is a constant, <laughs> it's a constant reminder of mortality. And that constant reminder of mortality has just, it's <laughs> made me care so much less about so many things that are just so trivial when you actually think about them. It made me more carefree, really. Like being a mortician made me, it made me more carefree in the idea that like, I'm okay with being a go-go dancer. I'm okay with doing, you know, doing things that maybe years prior, I would have thought, okay, if I do that, I can probably never run for office. Uh, <laughs> um, I feel like it's, it's, I wanted to do it. I wanted to try it. Um, and in that way, being a mortician has, has, has impacted me more than anything else. But being a go-go dancer is just, I, I mean, I realized after becoming a mortician that I might as well just do it while I'm young and have the looks for it. <laughs> because there's going to be a time when I'm not and you can't go back. You can't rewind.
I think what I'm most proud of is I'm most proud of how I've learned how to be versatile um, in my professional life and how it's actually taught me a lot about my personal life as well. You know, I've had an array of jobs like that, from, from being a mortician to a go-go dancer, like those both being on the end, the extreme ends, but I'm proud that that's taught me to just kind of experience everything. And that's really what, really the lesson that I've learned overall um, is just to experience everything that you can, whether it be like being a go-go dancer or being a mortician, you know, it's, it's good to have a perspective of each per, you know, with whichever hat you wear, it's good to have a different perspective on on things. And it gives you a perspective, different perspective on life overall. You know, uh, both jobs have taught me to not take life or myself so seriously. <laughs> we can't take life seriously, you know, because none of us are ever going to make it out alive. <laughs> Might as well just live it up. I think the best part of that was your like slightly unhinged laughter. <laughs> Are uh, you saying I'm unhinged? No, I'm just saying that like it's it's a I'm good. I'm not unhinged. <laughs> it's 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 absolutely perfect. This is okay. I can see that. This has got to be like one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. This is incredible. Thank you so I've much. I've had a Jen. great time. This has been an awesome interview. I love this. Like this is it's it's been I, the two hours flew by. It really did. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really Trey, appreciate it. It was a pleasure. I, I've, I've had a pleasure. This has been awesome. Thank you. Multiple times through our interview, it struck me just how much Joe loved and missed go-go dancing. At the time of this recording, the last time he had been up on The Box was in 2018, two years ago. I'm very excited to announce that Joe will be returning to the box. He's been asked for, by popular demand, to dance at a club called Savoy here in Orlando. He said, it felt like coming home. That means nothing to me. It's a podcast hosted by me, Trey Taylor. Audio editing is done on Audacity Suite 2.3.0 and we're recorded on a Yeti Blackout omnidirectional mic. All of our music credits for this episode can be found in the show notes, wherever it is you are listening to this. Special thanks go to Joe Dodd and all of you listening at home. Another reminder, I mentioned it in the previous episode, but our Patreon is up and running, so if you want to support the show even with a dollar a month, you can head over there and do just that. There's a couple of cool rewards I came up with built in with the different amounts, so read through each one and see if there's something that applies to you. And a big thank you to our most recent Patreon supporter, Alejandro Santiago, who took money out of his barbecue ribs fund in order to help me make this episode. We're still working on the formatting, length, and overall vibe of the show, so if you have any questions, comments, or you just want to let us know what you thought, please feel free to shoot me a message at contact at thatmeansnothing.com. We can also be found on all social media at that means zero, the number zero. Thanks for listening.